I want to make something very clear that I think maybe has been misunderstood over the last two Sundays. I am preaching principles, not specifics. I hope everybody understands. I made that very clear, but I think that's being missed because I'm doing it in such a hard fashion. I am preaching principles, not specifics. God couldn't really care less what your wedding looks like and what the wedding looks like of your children as long as, to a greater or lesser degree, you include the principles of emphasis that the Bible teaches. I have preached a number, every topic I take I have to handle this way. This one, because it deals with something very personal, we react to a little more strongly. But Bible economics, I taught about saving. God doesn't care how much you save as long as you save. He expects you to save enough. Well, what is that amount? Well, it depends on how serious you are about obeying the command to save. And it depends on how wise you are at being reasonable with the command to save. I mean, those are the two limits that bring us to a road of moderation. I am preaching principles. Let me give you an example. When I get up here and rant and rave about dating, unchaperoned dating, the dating of the 20th century, the dating of 1989, I am trying to teach a principle and warn you from God's Word and warn you from nature of the extreme risk you take by sending your teenagers out unchaperoned. That's my job to make that warning. Now, if you have a teenager that you trust and you have a date for that teenager you trust, that decision that you make as fathers, and the second point I've made is that fathers ought to be making the decisions, that decision you make is between you and God. It's my job to warn and set forth Bible examples that in the Bible things were done a little differently than they are in 1989. I am attacking that misguided, ignorant, naive, willy-nilly approach to dating that most of the kids that our children go to school with, if they're in any school system, are allowed to practice by their parents. I mean, it's, it's as if. 15 or 16 or 17 is a magical number. I am attacking that enemy that, has, that is being thrown at us all the time. Our kids are having it thrown at them all the time. I'm attacking that enemy. If you, before God, have a clear conscience and you're not being intimidated by your teenagers, and yet before God you want to give them, and allow them some liberties with a person of the opposite sex before they're married, that's between you and God. I have not said you can't do that. God's Word doesn't give me that liberty to say you can't do that. I most likely won't do that. But that doesn't mean you have... Every man has to stand before God in their own conscience based on your experience, the level of faith you have before God, and the way the Word of God impresses me, impresses you, and to the degree you want to be a radical in God's Word. If you want to make some modifications and you trust a particular individual, that's between you and God, and I'm not putting that position down in what I'm saying. 
I am just going to come from the opposite standpoint of what everyone else in this world is saying. And I'm going to warn you of the dangers. And if something happens, it's your fault. That's what I want to say. If something happens and you, your child gets emotionally involved with someone and ends up running away or getting married to them and they marry some scumbag, it's your fault, fathers. That's the point I'm making. And see, I can't tell, I'm not going to tell you who and who they can't marry. It's a principle I'm trying to establish. It's a, it's a form of emphasis from God's word and the Father. God doesn't tell us 16, 50, 15 and a half or anything like that. Or if the guy's 22, you can let a 16-year-old girl go out. He doesn't say that. He expects you all to have wisdom. But how is wisdom formed? By preaching like I give it to you. And then all of you are going to vary in your faith and in your wisdom. Some of you are going to take conservative, hard positions. Some of you are going to be more liberal. And within a range, neither are wrong. It's like the alcohol issue. Some of you don't want to touch anything unless we have the Lord's Supper. Some of you want to touch it every day. Neither of you are wrong as long as you're within the bounds of what God's Word teaches. But believe me, when we're on alcohol, I'm going to preach against drunkenness and I'm going to preach against total abstinence as hard as I do any other subject. And let you, before God, decide where you're going to fall. That is the liberty of the gospel. I'm preaching principles, not specifics. There's another thing I want you to think about. Uh, this year is 1989 A.D. It's not 1989 B.C. A lot of what we're reading is 1989 B.C. That affects some of the things we do. For instance, young marriages. I could preach an hour and any man with intelligence can know that there are good reasons for young marriages. Shouldn't even have to say them because they're so obvious. It's what the rest of the world's known it for 6,000 years. America hasn't. America marries at 22.5 years of age on average and look what they have, what they call marriages. But in the 20th century, we've got a problem. Girls between 12 and 18 that might be married in any other generation or society are not capable of being wives. The way they've been trained, they're not capable of being wives. Now, if some father got serious, they could be turned around in a short order. But overall, in general, we are working against an obstacle that you don't undo in one message. I can't preach the value of young marriages and have everybody go out with a daughter 12 years of age or older and get them married within inside of six months. Listen, we'd have, we'd have some real interesting family situations in this church because we're behind the eight ball. A dowry. You know, I'm going to preach on a dowry when I get to it, either tonight or next Sunday night. But there's, the New Testament doesn't establish a minimum for a dowry. Our nation has no going rate for a good-looking girl of 16 years of age. I mean, we're, we're, we're behind the eight ball. When I preach a dowry, am I telling all of you men to go home, calculate what you need to put that addition on your house and put a price tag on your daughter's chest to wear to church next Sunday? Some of you are really naive if you think that's what I'm trying to do. 
A dowry is really quite stupid unless you make some changes to what we find in the Bible. Because in the Bible, God said how much you were to charge, and there was a free market that established that. And men were bidding for your daughters. I mean, that was, that was great stuff. But if you charge a dowry today, you could have a daughter that's 45 living at home. I am preaching a... What is the principle of a dowry? How do you measure a prospective son-in-law? Man, there's wisdom in that. Measure him financially. It's the, it's the great determiner of what a good man is. And I'm going I'm to lay that out. I'm going to show Bible verses that God thinks the financial performance of a man is a great indicator of character. And that's what the dowry means. Listen, if you want to charge a $10,000 dowry when, you're, when your daughter marries, take the $10,000 out of that groom's hands at a young age and give it back to him. Put it in trust for 10 years and give it back to him when it's 30. I think that's brilliant. Because what 20-year-old knows how to spend money? Most don't. Even a groom that saved 10000 doesn't really have a good concept of money like he will at 30. There's all sorts of ways you can do it. It's a principle I'm trying to teach. There's family implications. Some of you, your kids are late. Some of you, you haven't trained them in a particular way. Some, it's harder to control. Given each family situation, you've got to take the principles I'm laying out and apply them differently. I mean, if we were all starting out with itty-bitty two and three and five and six-year-olds, we could start right and get a hold of them and they would just walk through life parroting back, Daddy's going to pick who I marry. And I know some of your kids do it and I love it and I hope you keep it up. It's going to be hard. This is 1989. That's great. But family implications teach that I've got families in here that can't handle that. I am teaching principles, not specifics. I am, you know what, you want the bottom line? I'm using weddings as an excuse to preach a philosophy. Any, anyone who's really perceptive can figure that out. I am preaching a philosophy from God's word. Weddings are a practical event and so are marriages. Parental authority is something that ought to be esteemed in the 20th century. I have not said any, for anybody, what have I said specifically? I'm laying out general points of emphasis that every father, every father that's a king of his kingdom, should take these principles and on his bed and with his Bible and before his God and on his knees and with his wife should figure out where am I going to stand on these principles. That's what I'm trying to give you. So what do I want to give you tonight? Look at Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22. I shocked some people last Sunday evening with a particular passage from Deuteronomy 22. A number of you have said things to me. I know that some girls went home and, wow, what is the Bible solution for rape? That's a, that's a mindful, isn't it? What's the Bible solution for rape? I want to read a lengthy passage in order to give you a full perspective. Is it hot in here? <laughs> no comments. Is it hot in here to you? Is it? Good. Newell, could you go lower that thermostat one degree? I run a disc. I run the risk of bodily harm. Deuteronomy 22, verse 23. 
I love that noise. Here's the mind of the Lord relative to rape. Verse 23, if a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed, here's an engaged woman, unto an husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. Rape in a city. You kill them both. Because she had the opportunity to scream, and she didn't scream. So you killed them both. The woman died because she didn't scream. The man died because he forced another man's woman. He humbled another man's woman. Notice what it says. He hath humbled his neighbor's wife. Humbled means he reduced his neighbor's woman in value, his engaged wife. Verse 25. But if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field, and the man force her, we're talking about rape, and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. But unto the damsel thou shalt do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death. For as when a man riseth against his neighbor and slayeth him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. It's assumed she cried, God is merciful. If they're in the field, the man dies and the woman goes free. She may not have cried. She may not have shot up flares, but she's saved. She's an engaged woman. The man's died in both cases because he's violated another man's woman. Now verse 28. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin, and notice what word is missing. She's not betrothed. Which is not betrothed and lay hold on her, and lie with her, and they be found. Then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife. Because he hath humbled her, he may not put her away all his days. Here's the rape of a virgin not attached to any man. When a man rapes a woman not attached to any man, there is no sin against a man. The sin is against the woman, but the sin is of a far lesser degree because the woman was made for the man. You say, but she wasn't made to be raped. No, she wasn't made to be raped. But because he raped her and he humbled her and he lowered her value, he has to marry her and live with her all of his life. And he may not put her away all his days. The divorce provision of the Old Testament didn't apply in his case. The reason he died in the other two cases was because it was a sin against another man, which is a higher crime than raping a woman. <clears throat> Stone me. A woman was made to be used sexually by a man, and if you don't like it, you've got a problem. That's why God made the woman. So when the man uses and even abuses a woman that way, it is not a crime worthy of death. It is a crime worthy of taking that woman and keeping her up and supporting her all the days of her life. But when another man has a woman and you go and rape his engaged wife, that is a sin against that man because that woman was made for that man. And a crime against a man carries with it a greater weight of punishment and you die for it. That is the difference. A woman is a man's possession as much as his house and his ass and his ox and his maidservant. 
If you don't like that, bark with God about the Ten Commandments. It's a man's possession because the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. This is not the philosophy of Jonathan Crosby. This is the Word of God. You want to know how to solve rape? Now, some poor girls went, <laughs> and I don't blame them. You mean you've got your daughter, and she goes to a football game, and some blankety-blank, blank, blank, rapes her. You mean she, you, she's got to marry him? Well, what's the answer? Does she have to marry him? No, because Exodus 22, 16 and 17 tells us if the father utterly refuses to give her to him, he has to pay the dowry of a virgin, and the girl stays at home with dad. You say, well, why is this text even in here? What father would ever give? his daughter away to someone that raped her. Well, you never, listen, someone like David, you would. You're going to get your dowry, and she's going to be well taken care of, and she can never be divorced. You say, well, it's not a very good beginning. I didn't say it was a good beginning. I just said that's the word of God. That is a solution. Because then that woman is guaranteed a husband for all of her life without recourse to divorce. If she stays at home because she's now a non-virgin, she may never marry. It is not the slight decision you think it might be because she's been humbled and it's going to be a whole lot harder to find a man for her. I wanted to go over that point. Uh, none of you girls should be worried about being attacked on the streets of Greenville sometime and have to end up living with some... Go ahead and fill it in whatever way you want to. Uh, that's not going to happen as long as uh, your dad and your pastor's around. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Okay, I want to get to a third point this evening. I've covered two elements of a scriptural wedding. This is an element of philosophy. Remember, it's a principle. A wedding is a practical event, not a religious event. Let's get away from the sacrament of holy matrimony to the celebration of a wedding and a marriage the way the Bible describes it. Number two, parental authority is highly esteemed in the Word of God. Every marriage that we have in the Word of God was ordained, arranged by the parents. God himself arranged the marriage between Christ and the church because he was the father of us both. Parental authority should be esteemed and recognized and given a place in a wedding. A wedding should reflect the fact that the fathers are very important figures. Far more important than the bride are the fathers. I mean, it's the fathers that are creating a new family unit. They are creating the new family unit. One father is sending his son. Another father is giving his daughter. They're, it's their progeny that's going to come out of that marriage. It's their decision that it will allow it to happen. It's their authority and experience and charging of their children that will hold that marriage together. We covered it all last Sunday. Parents ought to be given an important place in weddings, and they aren't today. The groom's father is ignored altogether and the bride's father is ignored for the most part. And we've ridiculed that enough. Let's go to point three. Point three, a wedding should emphasize God's blessing on the groom for whom marriage was ordained. A wedding and the marriage that follows a wedding should show the preeminent place of the groom over that of the bride. And again, I ask you to remember with me the traditional weddings you've been to. Who gets all the attention? 
not most of it, who gets all the attention and all the glory at a traditional wedding? The bride does. And I want to destroy that with the Word of God as a principle. Genesis 2.18 tells us that marriage was made for the man. And God saw the man and said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. God didn't make marriage for the woman. God made marriage for the man. A wedding ought to show that. A wedding ought to be a celebration for the man, not for the woman. It's a celebration for the man. Well, what if it's a real great woman? <laughs> All the more reason to celebrate what the man got. Marriage is for the man. What is the great celebration of a woman having to go into uh, hired servitude? You don't like those words? Well, she's paid for with a dowry, and she's to serve all the days of her life. She's to be a help, a helper, fit, suitable for Adam. That's what the Word of God teaches. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. A wedding should reflect exactly God's priority, God's emphasis on the groom and on the bride. Did I tell you about asking my daughter what her purpose in this universe was? A couple of weeks, I think I've told one or two of you, a couple of weeks ago, my mind's all gets burdened up with preaching things like this way in advance. One morning she walked in, didn't I tell you all this? I told a couple of you this. Um, she walked into the kitchen early in the morning, and I just looked at her and I said, uh, Rachel, do you know what your purpose in this universe is? Without a second's hesitation, which just my heart got this big, without a second's hesitation to serve a man for the rest of my life. Without a second's hesitation to serve a man for the rest of my life. I love her. I hope she keeps that attitude, and I'll do my best to keep it. And some guy's going to get his socks blown off one of these days. That's what she said, and that's exactly right. Marriage wasn't made for her. Marriage is no great thing when a woman fulfills her role in it. It's not a great thing for the woman when she fulfills her role in it. It's a good thing, but it's a great thing for the man. I'm trying to create relativity here. 1 Corinthians 11, 9. See, these words aren't mine. These are the words of God. Verse 8, the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. I never want you to forget verse 9. I've beat on it before. The man was not created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. That is a principle of philosophy on how we all ought to live. And a wedding should reflect that. Now look at Proverbs 18, 22. Let's just run a few references and see that the Bible emphasizes that from one cover to another. Those of you who have read your Bibles, you know that already. Proverbs 18, 22. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Do you think there's a text that says, Whoso findeth a husband findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord? Not one in the Word of God because that isn't where the emphasis is. That's not the important thing. The important thing is a man gets a woman, not that a woman gets a man. How about Proverbs 19, 14? House and riches are the inheritance of father, and a prudent wife 
is from the Lord. The Lord gives wives. The Lord doesn't give husbands in the same way. The Lord created wives for husbands, for men. It's a point of emphasis. It's a difference in priority, which should be emphasized. Let's look at Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. What should be the reason for celebration at a wedding? I've described a wedding as a celebration, a feast, a supper, a party. What should be the basis for that? Isaiah 62 and verse 5. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Do you remember the picture of arranged marriages? Many times the poor girl didn't know much about the guy she was going to marry. She didn't know if he'd bring flowers home or not. All she knew is he paid enough to get me. Three asses and a camel. She didn't know a thing about this man, but she had to go be this man's wife. So who's doing the rejoicing? Listen, she's not jumping up and down yet. She could be getting beat every night. Now that's in an extreme case. But she could have a very insensitive man who takes a shower once a month whether he needs it or not. She would not know in many cases. Now pity the father that ever did that if I got my hands on him and married his daughter off to some slob like that. Believe, girls, any of you that are afraid your dad's going to stick you with some slob, you're fools. And that's not what I'm teaching. If your dad loves you, he's going to look, he'll pick, he'll pick someone far better than you'd ever pick because he's been there and he knows a man. And like I said last Sunday, if you lived to be 95 and had the wisdom of Solomon, you wouldn't understand a man like your dad does and what's necessary to love a woman day in, day out, every day of the week, all of her life. A man knows those things. So who's doing the rejoicing in a scriptural wedding? The man is because he's got himself a woman. What's this woman going to do for him? She's going to be a bed partner. She's going to be a helper. Meet for Adam. You say, that makes it sound awful practical. You got anything else you want to add? From the Word of God, that's what it is. It's a very practical relationship. And so the person doing the rejoicing is the bridegroom. Now, sometimes the bride herself is going to know that she's getting a real catch and she should be doing some rejoicing. But overall, in general, by scriptural emphasis, it's the groom that's doing the celebrating. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 29. John chapter 3. John 3, 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. What does a bridegroom mean? He's got a bride. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. The friend of the bridegroom. Do you know the Bible does teach a best man? Called the friend of the bridegroom. He stands and listens to the sound of the groom's voice. Because the groom is excited, he's got himself a woman. Some of you are thinking, yes, a lot like deer and elk in heat, right? The friend of the bridegroom hears the voice of the bridegroom because the bridegroom has the bride. The bride does not have 
the bridegroom. The woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. And that emphasis should be seen clearly in a scriptural wedding. I pointed out a couple of weeks ago that we'd be scriptural if our weddings resembled a bachelor's party, and I mean a good, righteous bachelor's party, when the men would get together and celebrate the good fortune or the good blessing of God upon a man because he's got himself a woman. I showed you that for Jacob's celebration with Laban in Genesis 29, the women, including the bride, didn't even show up. What was their purpose for being there? Unless Jacob wanted to put her on display, and that wouldn't be inappropriate either. Look what I've got. Eat your hearts out, guys. Totally appropriate. Poor Vashti didn't understand that principle. Esther did and took the kingdom. Why should we start a marriage with the bride thinking she's really something special? We start marriages with a wedding where the bride is given all the preeminence and then she's expected to go into a relationship and serve? Listen, that's awful hard to do. When the whole wedding resolves around a bride, how do you get her into a, into a marriage where she's going to have to get up every day and serve all day long? And when he comes home from work at night, keep right on serving. How do you do that when the whole wedding re revolves around the bride? The point I'm making about the importance of wedding will set the tone for the marriage. The danger of these false traditions of exalting the bride over the groom is the emphasis they're going to leave in the marriage. How do you correct that but by correcting it at its very inception when it started in the wedding itself? You say, but I want my daughter to say something. I want her to have a role. I've got one for her, okay? I've got one from the Word of God. Let her reverence her Lord. You want your daughter to say something in public? Let her reverence her Lord. You say, well, where's the Bible example? Well, how about when David proposed to Abigail? And Abigail said in 1 Samuel 25 and verse 41 that she wasn't worthy to be David's wife, that she'd rather choose to be a servant of his and wash the feet of his servant. She didn't feel that she was good enough to even wash his own feet. You say, well, that was a sick woman. I say, by the authority of God's word in verse 3, that woman was of good understanding because that's what the Holy Spirit testifies of her. All she wanted to do was wash the feet of David's servants. And she was a woman of means, and she was a woman of beauty, and she was a woman of good understanding. That's the word of God. If a woman wants to say something in a wedding, then let her reverence her Lord. The Bible says that if you want to do well, you'll call your husband Lord and a good place to start on the first day. I think it's a great idea. You say, I think you're sick. Well, we'll measure everything by the Word of God. Would you show me a verse that's on your side? You won't find any in this book because it's written by the greatest male chauvinist pig the world has ever seen. And I use that term with all reverence. It's God Almighty that made the male first and made the female to serve him. Let's look at Matthew 25. Matthew 25. The woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. And I hate, see, I hate seeing marriages where that's corrupted. And all you have to do is look at any marriage in the 20th century and it's corrupted. And by any, I have to defend myself all the time, 99%. You know, the 1% doesn't count. 
99% of marriages in America today, it appears that the man was made for the woman. Matthew 25. I want to read 10 verses here. Bear with me. Verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto 10 virgins. Those are wedding attendants. Uh-oh. We've got women wedding attendants. I'll grant it. We got them. Let's see what they do. Which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. You want to have some female attendants at a wedding? I'll tell you what they can do. They can honor and rejoice and celebrate over the good fortune of the bridegroom and make him feel like the king of a harem. That's what they can do. You didn't have women fawning all over the bride. They're fawning all over the bridegroom. Verse 1, verse 2, and five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, he comes whenever he feels like it. In most weddings today, believe me, the bride's made sure that if he's not there, he's in trouble. If you're not there on time and if you don't behave just the way you should, you're in trouble. Because the bride and her mother control the weddings. Anybody that doesn't know that has never been to a wedding or you're willfully ignorant. Verse 6, And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh! Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. Now isn't that selfish, but the Lord taught this is a good lesson. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready, five virgins, went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. There are female attendants at a wedding, but they're giving their attention to the groom in the Word of God. Jesus is drawing from examples that all the people understood about how a wedding occurred. The attention is on the groom. And even the female attendants are there for the honoring of the groom. And they go forth to meet him, and they go with him into the marriage. And the door is shut, and the others come later, and they're kicked out. They're not allowed in. But notice... Behold, the bridegroom cometh. I've already made this point, but I want you to see it. The statement that is made in the word of God, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. He comes when he wants to, and he comes with a great deal of fanfare. But it's the bridegroom that comes. And what song do we play to the point of making you nauseous if you love the word of God? Here comes the bride. Now, are things backward or are things backward? I mean, here's that little jerk standing up there. And all the attention. Every, what does everybody do? Am, am I exaggerating the case? What does everybody do? They stand up. Why are they standing up? Reverence the bride. Did they stand up when the groom walked in? They weren't even looking at him. They were looking down the aisle to see when she'd appear. They didn't even see him. They thought he was the little boy that was going to light the candles. He's a nobody in the wedding. He just stands up there. And every head is turned down that aisle, and there's the organ music. Any change in music for the entry of the groom? 
It's all for the entry of the bride. The name of the song is Here Comes the Bride. Well, whoop-dee-doo. She ought to be standing at the front with her dad, and the groom ought to come in, like I said, in a white horse and mount that altar. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Trot a white stallion, brethren, a stallion would only do, and mount that altar. That'd show the world what God thought. You say, well, that's ridiculous. You don't have any Bible basis for a white stallion. Anybody want to try me? Revelation 19, what will Jesus Christ be mounted on? I'll tell you one thing, it ain't a white gilding. Jesus Christ will appear on a white horse and he will be the groom and we shall all be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here comes the bride, somewhat contradicts. Behold, the bridegroom cometh, somewhat. You say, I didn't like that first verse that you took those female attendants and made them following the bridegroom. Come over to Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Let's see if I can't get my second witness on this point. The attendants at a wedding should reverence the groom. When women go into marriages with everything so screwed up in the wedding, how can we expect them to perform the way they should once they're in the marriage without the grace of God performing something supernatural in their lives? Song of Solomon 1.3. Here's his woman speaking of Solomon. Because of the savour of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth, therefore do the virgins love thee. The virgins love Solomon. Solomon was a dreamboat, and the virgins showed that. They followed after him. He got lots of attention wherever he went. A, bro a groom is to get the attention of the attendants at a wedding. Why stand for the bride? Why stand for the bride? You know, you can't even think right now. Some of you are, you've shut your minds off. Some of you are rebelling against what I'm saying because you cannot even think against tradition. Why not stand for the groom and sit for the bride? That makes sense. Standing for the bride is ridiculous. If you think this way, as the Word of God thinks. I don't care what your thoughts are, that tradition is perverse. What chance is there in heaven the church is going to get more glory than Christ? What chance? How much glory is the church going to get? You say, well, the church is going to be perfect. It's going to be gloriously arrayed in white linen. Yeah. Jesus Christ is going to make sure it's gloriously arrayed in white linen. For what purpose? I'll give you two. For himself. Two words. For himself. You know who's going to get the great thrill of that day? Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me perfectly arrayed. This is my bride but he's going to get the glory. Look what I did, because you know what they're all going to be singing? They're not going to be singing, here comes the bride. They're going to be saying, thank you, bridegroom, forever having loved us because we never deserved it. I've preached on that before. It, it'll turn, if you think I'm turning your stomachs, wait till you see things totally reversed. We'll be giving all the attention and glory to the Lamb of God himself. What's the bride chamber? Well, that's where the bride stays until she comes out for her glorious entry, right? Wrong. Who hides in the bride chamber in the Word of God? 
the groom, and he comes out when he wants. And at this particular wedding in Matthew 25, he made them wait till midnight. You know, the bride may have sent out invitations for 12 o'clock noon, but he didn't show up till midnight. I like a man like that. Make the party wait for him. You say, prove that a bride chamber is for the bridegroom. It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like a chamber for the bride. Well, let's look at it in Joel 2. Ah, don't worry about it. Matthew 9 is easier. They both teach it. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, 15, Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The children of the bride chamber, the people there to celebrate the presence of the bridegroom. And why should they be mourning if the bridegroom is with them? It's a point here. Joel 2, 16 teaches the very same thing. I want you to see Psalm 19 and verse 5. Psalm 19 and verse 5. You say, you must hate your daughter. You hate your daughter, that's why you're preaching this way. There isn't a man in here that loves his daughter as much as I love mine. Try me any time, by any measurement. You say, boy, are you haughty and arrogant. I just love my daughter. Try me. I'm not putting my daughter down. I've taught her to expect what is biblical for her marriage. And believe me, the guy that she gets is going to take good care of her. She's not going to be hurting too bad or she's going to be a spinster with me the rest of her life because there's more than one man she can serve. Psalm 19, invert, you say, you don't have the authority to do that. Somebody give me the text. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 36. If I want to keep her the rest of my life, I can keep her. 1 Corinthians 7, 36 through 38. You say, now you're cruel. Not only do you hate her, but you're cruel. You think I'd do that? Listen, if Joe Super were here right now, I'd get her married in the next 24 months. Psalm 19 and... You say, why not tonight? Well, it takes me a while to get used to her being gone. Psalm 19 and verse 5. This is describing the Son. Notice verse... You know the story. It's Psalm 19, 1 through 4. is describing the Son which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Do you know what a bridegroom ought to look like in a wedding? The sun on the eastern horizon in a, at a sunrise. That's what a groom ought to look like. It ought to be a glorious event. It ought to be like a strong man rejoicing to run a race. A strong man is the guy who walks to the starting line and you can see all over his face and body who's going to win before they take the first step. Anybody who watched the Olympics in Seoul, Korea, saw Ben Johnson from Canada. I don't know if you watched the 100 meters. Boy, I watched the 100 meters religiously that night. It was so obvious he was going to win. I mean, he was full of juice. If they'd have turned the lights out, he'd have glowed in the dark. He had more steroids in him than the average football player takes in a career. His eyes were yellow. The whites of his eyes were yellow, but I don't care. He had one body that was to be desired. He looked like a football player compared to those skinny little rails that were lined up beside him. And Char Carl Lewis, while people think he's got a body, has nothing compared to Ben Johnson. It was obvious. Ben Johnson just walked around back there confidently. He had loafed through all the semifinals. And it was a glorious sight. 
and he won so badly. Carl Lewis was just run right into the ground. It was a brilliant race. One problem, <laughs> he'd been to the pharmacy one too many times. But still, the race was a good race. I mean, he was stronger for an improper reason given our athletics. I don't know if steroids is a whole other subject. But Psalm 19 and verse 5, what should a bridegroom look like when he enters the wedding? Like the sun. Verse 4, their line, has gone out, their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. The son and the bridegroom should resemble each other in a scriptural wedding. And that's a glorious event to see the son. What, what about the apparel of the two? What about the apparel of the groom and the bride at your standard wedding? Complaints are made because horrors. We had to pay $45 for the groom's tux. Whores! We had to pay $70 for the groom's tux. Well, what'd you pay for the bride's dress? <laughs> well, it's on an installment plan. It only takes $50 a month. Ever look through a catalog of bride's dresses? Absolute insanity. Do they ever wear them again? Insanity. Why? Roman Catholic emphasis on the woman resulting in the bride's mother wanting to set a stage where she can put her daughter in front of all the public and get accolades and get her daughter written up in the paper. Ever look at a wedding picture in the paper? I don't know if they do it down here like they did up north. They put the picture in and they tell all about the dress. Isn't that precious? Have you ever seen that? They tell all about the dress. Well, it was this kind of a veil and this kind of a train, this kind of lace. Oh, cut them. What about the groom? Well, he wore his father's suit from when he got married. What does the Bible have to say about how, to, how they're to be adorned? Right there, I've said enough. They emphasize the bride over the groom. Look at Isaiah 61 and verse 10. Listen, dressing up. Rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a first bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. A bridegroom and a bride adorn themselves. Notice the bridegroom here is decking himself with ornaments. He's making himself as glorious as he possibly can. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Why does a bride adorn herself? Why should a bride adorn herself on her wedding day? For the bridegroom, for herself, for her picture in the paper, for the write-up in the paper, forget it. For the bridegroom. That's the only reason it's important. Because he is to be the center of attention. Jeremiah 2.32, Can a maid forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. And then look at Revelation 21 and verse 2. Revelation 21 and verse 2, who ought to pick the wedding dress? I mean, this is, these are principles. I'm not, you're not going to be excluded if your daughter picks her wedding dress. But by emphasis, by scriptural example, by the purpose for a wedding dress, who ought to pick it? The bride's mother or the groom? 
Revelation 21, 2, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who prepared and who adorned this bride? What are they wearing? The white linen of the saints. And who, who picked the garment? The husband did. God himself through Jesus Christ. A bride should always reflect her purpose in this universe, and it's 1 Corinthians eleven seven: The man is the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. That doesn't mean that the woman is more glorious than the man and ought to be the center of attention any more than the man should be the center of attention when he's in the presence of God. God derives glory to himself by the creation of the man in a sphere of authority. The man derives glory from the woman by her submission under authority and by being created for him. That's how the woman is the glory of the man, just like the man is the glory of God. God has placed us men in positions of authority, and he derives glory from that fact because we're acting like little gods in this world. And the woman at a wedding should make sure she is a source of glory for the man. That's why she ought to adorn herself that way. That is the word of God. The man is the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Who typically provided for the marriage feast, the celebration, the supper, the wedding, the cost in the word of God? This is amazing how fast we can turn things around. Who paid for it? The father of the groom and the groom paid for weddings in the word of God. Why should a man losing his daughter pay for the event that takes her away. Does that make sense? In the word of God, a man that was going to give up a daughter not only had the groom or the groom's father pay for the wedding, he also was paid a dowry. I mean, the man who lost a daughter walked away with some compensation for it. You lose a daughter today, you walk away broke. You don't even get a dowry, and you've got to pay for giving her away. Now, does that make sense? Don't they call it giving the bride away? You've got to pay to give your bride away. Do you know what a father is saying about his daughter? He's got to pay to give her away? It's pitiful. We have totally reversed it. Why does the... Oh, it is so simple, though. I wish you people could think, why does the bride's family pay for it? So that the bride's mommy can control it. So that the bride's mommy can control it. Because that bride's mommy is living Mother Goose all over again. Fairyland. She is going to create a public stage for herself and for her daughter. No wonder you get no attention in a man. Because you've got a woman planning the event. And that is a fact. You give me a man who throws a party for his son, and I'll tell you where the emphasis will be. It'll be on the son. By nature. And that's the way it was always done in the Word of God. This isn't the philosophy of Jonathan Crosby. This is the Word of God. We've just turned things upside down. Listen, the marriage of a daughter isn't typically as glorious as the marriage of a son because the son's getting something. In John, one last reference on the, the wedding and the importance of the groom compared to the bride. Look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We'll look at one last Bible example. This is an actual wedding that Jesus attended, a marriage. John 2, verse, I don't want to read the whole thing. All of you are familiar with it. There are a couple of titles used in this passage. 
that we want to understand. They begin in verse 8. Jesus is saying to the servants, he said unto them, Draw out now, that is the water, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast, now the word governor and ruler are the same here. There is an individual called the governor or the ruler of the feast. When he had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, it's interesting, is they're all standing around with their knees knocking. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. Question, who provided the wine for the wedding? The bridegroom did. What was the function of this other person? Oversee the affairs of the feast because what bridegroom wants to be cumbered down with having to make sure everyone's getting fed? The governor of the feast or the ruler of the feast is what we would call today a master of ceremonies, which is nothing more than a host for a large gathering. That's all a master of ceremonies is, is a host for a large gathering to take care of all the details of getting people fed taken care of, in the right place at the right time, events coordinated, time deadlines met, while the, the groom himself can relax without that burden on him. John chapter 2 teaches you that if you read it. But the wine itself was provided by the bridegroom. They, the groom and the groom's father bore the expense of the wedding. The third element of a scriptural wedding that I've tried to give you is that the groom ought to be honored over the bride by a long way. We have reversed things terribly. Think about some of the things I've said. Think about who, who we stand for in a wedding. The money that is spent on the apparel of the groom versus the bride. The woman that is the most important figure at any traditional wedding. The mother of the bride. And think about some of the things that we've changed. And as you start thinking about your daughters, God help us to restore some of these principles in some measure. Because how in the world can we expect girls to go into a marriage when we start them off upside down? Point number four. Point number four may be hard for some of you to swallow, but hear me out. A wedding should reflect in some way whether the bride is a virgin or not. There ought to be public recognition of virginity or the lack of it. You say, you're sick. Let me ask you a couple of questions before I show you what the Word of God teaches. What, does a white, what is a white dress supposed to mean in an American wedding? A virgin. Vague concepts like purity don't mean anything. I mean, relatively speaking, a white dress is supposed to mean a virgin is under that dress. That is unspoken, spoken, written, and unwritten tradition in America. But today, anyone wearing a white dress, everyone sits there and guesses as much as if she didn't have anything on. Because no one knows anymore, because that tradition has basically fallen by the wayside. Because as I'm going to read in just a moment, a virgin today is as rare as a unicorn. The importance of a bride's virginity has just about been obliterated in the U.S., What's a girl that isn't a virgin supposed to wear to a wedding? What color of a dress? Ever seen one? Light blue, light green, light pink, pastels, but not white. She doesn't get white because she isn't a virgin. 
What's a widow or a divorced woman supposed to wear in her second marriage? Come on, some of you people are supposed to be with it in etiquette. Ivory. These poor women can't speak, and they're the only ones that know. And you poor guys don't know anything. Well, now you do. Go look in a catalog tonight. Go home and look. You'll see white dresses and you'll see ivory dresses. An ivory dress is designed for someone in a second wedding. That slightly different shade is a legitimate first wedding. But they're being married the second time. They are not equal to the woman that goes under a white dress. The woman under a white dress is a virgin. The woman under a yellow dress, some pastel color, is not a virgin. And that difference has been made in our nation. But we've lost it. Nobody practices it anymore. Truly. Everyone has to guess. Well, in the Word of God, you never had to worry about guessing. And I could, I could say a lot of things against Prince Charles and Lady Diana. But I want to say this. And I want to commend a nation that lies across the Atlantic Ocean from us. Before Lady Diana ever married Prince Charles, there was one thing the whole nation knew by a gynecologist inspection. And nothing short of that, that she was a virgin. Did you, do you remember that from eight years ago? It was made nationwide. She had to go visit a gynecologist and have it proven that she was a virgin because the prince, heir to the throne of England, was not going to marry a non-virgin. There's royal reasons for that. But that was made public. You say, well, that's sick. I think it is absolutely beautiful. I'll tell you one thing. When we get to heaven, there's one thing going to be declared about us. And you better be a virgin when you're there or you're not going to be allowed into that marriage. You will be. You'll be without spot and you'll be blameless. Blameless. They made so much fun of Lady Diane in the beginning, kindergarten school teacher, poor little shy girl. Well, I'll tell you one thing she gave Prince Charles, and that was virginity. And the article that I'm referring to, and it's, it was, it's eight years old now, it was said in a lot of places, you know, that's as rare as a unicorn these days. But I want to honor that woman for what she gave Prince Charles and her father and whoever was responsible for keeping her that way. Now look in the Word of God. Is virginity important in the Bible? And listen, if you've got a problem with something like this, this basic, this obvious, and this important being mentioned in a pulpit, you have a severe problem with the Word of God. Genesis 24 and verse 16. I'll be discreet. Listen, God made women different than men for one purpose, that physically there would be a very obvious sign of whether she was a virgin or not. And any woman that has the gall to tell me it's not an obvious sign does not know anything about God's Word or the physical anatomy of a woman. I am so sick of reading in some of the books that I have about it not being a sure sign. It is a sure sign. Exceptions of 1% or 2% mean nothing. Because believe me, the providence of God will make sure that if, you, if we ever restored such a thing as Israel had, the 1% or 2% will never be called in question. Because if God makes a law that people's lives hang on it, it is valid. 
And when you marry before you're 35 years of age, there is a tendency for that particular part of her anatomy to be intact. Genesis chapter 24, verse 16. Abraham's servant finds Rebekah, and we read in verse 16, the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin. Neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. Now, why are those things mentioned about Rebekah? There's two things mentioned there that made her extremely valuable to Abraham and to his son Isaac. One, she was very beautiful to look upon, and two, she had never known another man. Look at Leviticus chapter 21. Leviticus 21 and verse 14. These are requirements for the priests of God of who they could marry. Verse 13, he shall take a wife in her virginity. The priests were set forth as the examples. He shall take a wife in her virginity. Verse 14, a widow or a divorced woman or profane or an harlot. These shall he not take, but he shall take a virgin of his own people to wife. Those that were to be the example to the rest of the nation, those that had to be in the presence of God, could only marry a virgin. Look at Numbers 31. Numbers chapter 31. Now let me tell you the story in Numbers 31. The Israelites went out and fought against the Midianites. They kept all the women alive. Moses blew his stack and so did God. And God and Moses said, go, in, go among all those captive women and give them a gynecologist inspection and those that pass, save alive, and those that flunk, kill them on the spot. Numbers 31, verses 17 and 18. Look at Deuteronomy 22. We've already read it. What is the Bible word that describes a woman that's lost her virginity? What's the Bible word? She has been humbled. What does that word mean in the Bible? In this particular case, does it mean she walks around very modestly and meekly from now on? No, it means she's been reduced in value and reduced significantly. When we talk, for instance, when we use words like humbled and honored, there's a financial value. For instance, in 1 Timothy 5, we speak of honoring widows that are widows indeed. Does that mean you always say, yes, ma'am, when you speak to a widow indeed? Or does that mean you fork over money because she's worthy of financial support? It's a different use of the terms than we're used to. Humbled means reduced in value. Honored means you provide the financial things that she needs. Look at Isaiah 62 and verse 5, a verse we've already read. Isaiah 62 and verse 5. God assumes certain things about men, and if I ever assume them or sound like I'm assuming them, I'm assuming them because the Bible teaches them and human experience confirms it. Isaiah 62, 5, For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. Young men want to marry virgins. There's very obvious, very plain reasons for that. Look at 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, you know. Paul is describing uh, his care for the Corinthian church by comparing it to a man who wants to preserve his chaste virgin to preserve her in that state. Now, I want to say something about virginity and why it's important and why it should be recognized. The woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. The woman owes the man her virginity. The woman owes the man her virginity. The man does not owe the woman his virginity. 
The woman owes the man her virginity. The man does not owe the woman his virginity. The man owes God his virginity. And there is all the difference in the world. That does not mean one can sin more freely than the other. Other than this point, God has so ordained that the woman is to be caught and judged. And God has allowed many men to enter into relationships where they were not virgins. Yes, they'd be judged by God. The relationship was with God. The woman doesn't owe God her virginity. The woman owes the man her virginity. The man owes it to God. Because the order of authority is God, the man, the woman. The woman was created for the man. And she owes it to him. God's always had a double standard on this point, And a double standard doesn't mean a wrong standard. It just means a different emphasis. The emphasis is this. The woman was created anatomically different from the man so that it could be detected. You can't ever detect virginity in a man. Why? There weren't ever tokens of virginity for a man because the woman never had a right to them. God expected a man to abstain from fornication, but a woman didn't have that right to demand that. The anatomy of the man and the woman were made different by God so that it could be detected in the woman, not in the man. Number two, the woman could get pregnant. Man's never gotten pregnant yet. And that gives it away. Number three, do you remember what happened to a woman if when she was even defending her husband, she touched another man in the word of God? Her hand was cut off. You knew the last words of that verse? Let none pity her. Now, wait a minute. That woman loved her husband enough to try to preserve him in battle. Why cut her hand off? Because God made a double standard extremely severe. If you want to think the way God thinks, you'll think about these Bible references. Four, a man had the opportunity of a test of jealousy. There was never any such thing for the woman because the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. Remember the test of jealousy? A man could be jealous, take his wife down to the priest and find out. Lost virginity should be a cause for great shame and disgrace. God's made it that way. God has made a number of means available for detecting it, and God considers it something that ought to be out in the open to some degree and publicly recognized so that virgins can be honored and those that aren't can be shamed. You say you're cruel. No, I'm not cruel. There are just foolish women in this world. And there are fathers that don't love their daughters because the ultimate person responsible for the virginity of a daughter is the father. And that's the point I want to make in this section. And that's why I commend, without him ever hearing my words, the father of Lady Diana and the fact that a whole nation was aware of what took place before she married Prince Charles. Girls from an early age should be taught specifically the extreme importance of virginity because the Bible makes it extremely important. The Bible doesn't deal in vague nothingness like purity. What does purity mean? It's very specific in the Word of God. And a girl should be a virgin and she ought to be taught that. Number two, our young girls ought to be taught the tremendous sacrifice of future value for present gratification. See, there isn't any. If a girl gives up something for present gratification, what is the future loss of value? There isn't any anymore. But there ought to be 
a loss of future value to motivate girls to preserve their virginity. And three, they ought to be warned about the unequal compensation of the present gratification. It never, never, ever makes up for losing it. That moment is nothing compared to what a girl gives up. And fourth, our young girls ought to be taught how most guys think. And it's found in 2 Samuel 13. And this is a horrifying passage for young girls. It ought to be a horrifying passage. 2 Samuel 13, verses 1 through 14 describe Amnon being obsessed with his sister Tamar, half-sister Tamar. And so an evil friend of his named Jonadab gives him a scheme by which he can get Tamar in his bedroom. And David goes along and allows it to happen. And Amnon forces, rapes his sister. But there's one verse I want you to get this past through 2 Samuel 13, verse 15. After he raped her, then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. I want you to look at the first verse of this chapter. The second verse. No, the first and the second verse. It came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. He loved her exceedingly, but... Once he had forced her, once she had lost her value, what was his attitude toward her? One of hatred. And if we can ever get a hold of our young girls to realize that the average guy, apart from the grace of God, that will take a girl's virginity before she's married, will, is hating her when he does it and will end up hating her for it. Do you know why the tokens of virginity were kept in Israel? So that if a man ever, ever raised an evil name against a virgin of Israel, that girl's parents could come out and produce the evidence that she was a virgin and he would be whipped and fined for bringing an evil name upon a virgin of Israel. That is a defense of a woman when she is married, that she was a virgin when she was married. Look at Leviticus chapter 21. Leviticus 21. It's amazing. You know, our nation has in place a certain public recognition of these things. But it's been lost. It's been lost. Leviticus 21 and verse 9. And the daughter of any priest, if she profane herself by playing the whore, she profaneth her father. She shall be burnt with fire. This is the point I want to make. A daughter who plays the whore and loses her virginity is a reflection on the father because it's the father's responsibility to take care of her. And when a daughter does that, she's profaning her father's name. Who kept the tokens of virginity? The daughter? No, the father. Because it was an evil name not only on his daughter but on his name. And he brought forth the tokens of virginity to the elders of the city to defend himself. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 through 21. Come back to 2 Samuel 13. 2 Samuel 13. 
there are so many ways we can approach our children, especially our daughters, to teach them what is right, what is wrong about this matter. And this is one right here as to what relationship they'll have with the guy that they give in to early. But I want another point now. I want verse 18. This is speaking of Tamar. She's been thrown out of the room now. She's been rejected. And now she's ruined. Verse 18, she had a garment of divers colors upon her. For with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. Then his servant brought her out and bolted the door after her. Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of divers colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. Verses 18 and 19. Tamar lost her virginity. What did a king's daughter? This is, I mean, you couldn't be more public than a king's daughter. You were everywhere. Parades with your dad everywhere. If you were a virgin, you wore a garment of divers colors that told the world you were a virgin because... Believe me, it was only high bidder take that girl. Because a king's daughter, when, when David had 10 or 20 wives, you had lots of daughters, and you bid for them. It was a very valuable commodity. But if you weren't a virgin, you had to wander around in a different garment, public shame every time you appeared. You, you say, that isn't fair. That isn't right. That isn't cool or couth or cultured to do things like that. It's the Word of God, and I think if we did it, we'd be a lot more cultured than we are. Culture is... Women are virgins when they marry. That's culture. If you want to use the word culture, as soon as she'd been violated, lost her virginity, she tore her garment, put her hand on her head, and went on crying in verse 19. Look at Genesis 38. Genesis 38. You know, even a widow was to wear clothing not for mourning, but a widow is to wear clothing indicating she'd been married before. See, a man, you didn't have all this dating where you sat down someplace and you got all the secrets out of some girl. It was all made public. The virgin maidens were running around in certain outfits, and those that weren't maidens had different outfits. And if a woman had been married before, she had even a different outfit. So that in public, there was constant commendation or constant shame. Genesis 38, verse 19, this is speaking of another Tamar that ended up being the wife of Judah for a time. Verse 19, she arose and went away and laid by her her veil from her and put on the garments of her widowhood. A widow wore certain outfits to indicate she'd been married before and she was now a widow. Just like the ivory gowns that were supposed to be using today to indicate a second marriage versus a white. <clears throat> what would public recognition of some form? Now, Lady Diana did it with a gynecologist cert certificate or certification made public to the whole nation. The whole nation waited for it because if she wasn't, Prince Charles couldn't have her. The reason for that is obvious. What if she conceived and three months after they were married, she's showing because she's pregnant? How would they ever be able to prove there are blood tests, but how would they know going into the thing that any pregnancy she had was his? And that's one way they confirm it is by starting out clean. Just like Ahasuerus, remember in the book of Esther why he put the women apart for one year? You didn't haul women in and then have them as the wives of the king 
but they've been they've conceived already by another man then you'd have a bastard on the throne i mean kings take care public recognition would accomplish these things now the bible emphasizes it from genesis to revelation it ought to be ingrained in our daughters because the bible wants it ingrained death resulted if the tokens of virginity could not be produced let's say your daughter's been married for 10 years and they're having a fight i mean he's in a bad mood and he calls her a whore if he called her a whore and the tokens of virginity could not be produced what happened to that poor girl she died she died that's how important it was what are some benefits that we would have if we did it the Bible way in some fashion? One, we would honor the bridegroom who's getting a virgin. We'd honor the bridegroom who's getting a virgin because a bridegroom that gets a virgin deserves to be honored because he's getting something worthy of honor. Two, we'd honor the virgin herself. Public recognition would honor her. You say that's something that's secret. Oh, no, it's not secret. If you think it's secret, you don't think the way God thinks. He never kept it a secret. He made it very public because a woman that is a virgin deserves to be commended for that. Three, we would establish a virgin's integrity for the future of her marriage because that would be a constant reminder to that man that he got a virgin, he better take care of her accordingly because he got something special when he married her. Number four, it would shame all those that have played the whore. Anybody that have to get married and wear a pink dress? I think the dress idea is just as fine as any. But we just don't do it anymore consistently. Every dad ought to make sure that it's done. You say, well, it's not polite for dads to know that. I'm not even going to say anything because it wouldn't be fit for this assembly. Our mother doesn't know squat about virginity nor care about it like a father does. And a father has every right to it. In the Bible, it's the father that is the preserver of that, not the mother. There are ways of knowing that are discreet, and I've already mentioned two this evening. For the fourth reason I mentioned it would shame those that have played the whore. Public shame. Five, it would provide motivation and warning to all other young girls that would witness that wedding. Every little girl would witness the commendation of a girl that saved herself and the shame of a girl that did not. And that constant reinforcing in the lives of young girls when they're 10 and 12 and 14 is what our young people need. Not being shamed at the public school for still being a virgin when they're 17. Now that's a big difference. And I, I haven't gone to public school down here, but I know where I came from. And it was a stigma. All men that have ever lived much in a locker room know the jokes and know exactly what it's called about the ones that were perceived to still be that way. And there was actually, actually jokes made about violating them. That is, all dads have a responsibility to protect their daughters and to preserve them. And you've got to start by teaching them what I'm talking about right now. It was very public in Israel. If there was ever any public recognition, for instance, what if we had a wedding and whatever the wedding looked like, I know we're all imagining you know, 
in the form of a cross, you know, attendance here and attendance there and somebody coming down the aisle. But however the wedding occurred, if in the dress or in some other form, virginity was recognized, you know, a statement, a, a, the father could publicly commend his daughter. Do you know how much weight that would carry with other girls if it was done properly? She deserves that honor. The father could commend his daughter. The groom could commend his bride. The groom's father could commend the bride's family for preserving a woman for his son. What glory in a thing that today, through prudery, we shouldn't talk about it. Who said we shouldn't talk about it? Emily Post? The Word of God teaches it. Go ahead, ignore it in your family. Ignore it in your family and bear the consequences of having an ignorant daughter. It's extremely important, and the Word of God emphasizes it. I've left you two more elements of a scriptural wedding tonight. We have four. Number one, marriage in a wedding should not look like a religious sacrament. We need to change it from what Rome's given us by false tradition received from our fathers, even if they weren't Catholics. Number two, parental authority ought to be esteemed and exalted at a wedding, showing the responsibility and the honor of the fathers that are involved. Point three, the groom ought to be emphasized over the bride to reflect the fact that the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. There ought to be some public recognition in some way. I haven't... Go ahead and decide your own way. But some public recognition to honor a virgin and to honor the groom that gets such a prize. And those are four points I've given you so far from the Word of God. The Bible does not think the way the 20th century mind thinks. We have every one of these points reversed in many homes. Even point four, shame at still being a virgin. I wish to God I could preach and scream for an hour if it would be enough to compensate to every girl that's ever been shamed for being a virgin that she was something most beautiful in the sight of God. And that if she ever took shame, believe me, there's a, a lot of men that fear God that would honor her and commend her for her reserving that for the man she married. May God bless the preaching of His Word and may He bless our minds to think the way He thinks.